Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. As a listener note, this episode does discuss some instances of child abuse and neglect. It's important that if this is a sensitive subject for you specifically, then please wait to listen to the next episode. In 2014, Pope Francis and the Vatican formally recognized the International Association of Exorcists, which had 250 exorcists in 250 countries. Of course, Protestants also carry out exorcisms, but according to Dr. Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University, the Catholic rites are more formal, whereas Protestant exorcisms are often more theatrical. Protestant exorcists will frequently interview the possessed to try to determine which demon possesses them. Unfortunately, there are dozens of non-sanctioned exorcisms that occur in small cult-like religions, and some that occur without any church affiliation at all. Many of these rituals leave their victims injured or dead. Sadly, a large number of these victims are children. Okay, on to the show. On February 8, 1988, in Pace, Florida, ambulance drivers transported four-year-old Kimberly McZink to the Santa Rosa Medical Center. Kimberly weighed a mere 28 pounds, 12 kilograms, or two stones. She was also covered in red and blue bruises from her chest down to her legs. Her mother, Darlene Jackson, did not speak to investigators, but told ambulance drivers she had stopped recently feeding Kimberly fast food. Darlene and Kimberly were living with Mary Nicholson, an evangelist, her husband, and their four children. Mary told police that Kimberly was a picky eater. However, investigators found the truth in Darlene's floral pattern diary. Kimberly was being beaten and starved to exercise demons her mother thought were possessing her. Darlene was raised in a large middle-class family and eventually obtained a master's degree in public administration. She moved to New York City and got a job with AT&T, and then met Kenneth McZink, Kimberly's father. Darlene was not overly religious, attending church infrequently. When Kimberly was born, things changed drastically. Darlene's job had her traveling six months out of the year, so she quit and took a pay cut to teach in Brooklyn. Darlene met a devout fundamentalist, also a teacher, and Kenneth began seeing less of Darlene. Darlene also began dressing more conservatively and began attending church with her colleague. Kimberly vomited once as a preacher cast demons out of fellow churchgoers, which caused alarm with Darlene's friend, who believed Kimberly was possessed. She put Darlene in touch with Mary Nicholson of Pace, Florida. The pair began corresponding regularly. Mary sent Darlene food, and Darlene sent Mary money, a total of $20,000 according to Darlene, but Mary argued and said it was only a 1000 Darlene and Kimberly moved in with Mary and her family in July 1987. Soon, neighbors and Mary's family members noticed how thin Kimberly had become. One of Mary's daughters contacted social services, who spoke with Darlene, but then immediately closed the case. 
Darlene told them Kimberly had always been thin. However, Mary's journals had entries such as, Hit her in the mouth. In the mouth, I say. Keep to the diet. Spare not the rod of correction. Speak less and whip more with severity. Also, my hand is upon her. Her weak state demonstrates my way is the only way, regardless of how thin and weak she becomes. I will sustain her. Darlene kept asking investigators, how did I let this happen? She pled guilty to third-degree murder after testifying that Nicholson had brainwashed her. Darlene also believed she was drugged, since Mary prepared all of her meals separately from Mary's family meals. Mary Nicholson was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to a minimum of 25 years, plus 30 months for aggravated child abuse. Kimberly's death highlighted the serious issues with the social work system, which included too many cases and not enough caseworkers. Unfortunately, that statistic hasn't changed. Kimberly's tragic and agonizing death was drawn out over several months. The next case was brutal and took place over the course of approximately 30 hours. On December 2, 2008, at 10.37 a.m., a 911 call was received in Russ County, Texas. The caller stated, My name is Blaine Millam, and my daughter, I just found her dead. When the first deputy arrived on scene 20 minutes later, there were two ambulances at the scene. Upon entering the mobile home, Sergeant Kevin Roy saw a young woman and a young man kneeling on the floor in the master bedroom. Sergeant Roy could see an infant laying on the floor, bruised and not beating. He later reported, quote, The baby was laying on its back, and the face of the baby was just one large bruise. He saw circular bruises on the baby's body and thought that they had been made by a soda can. He would later find out these were bite marks. The baby was 13-month-old Amora Carson, daughter of Jessica Carson. 18-year-old Jessica was the girlfriend of Blaine Millam. She and her daughter were living with Blaine and were engaged to be married. Blaine told officers that he was raising Amora. Blaine told Sergeant Roy that he and Jessica had left Amora in the mobile home while they walked down the road to meet someone about clearing some land. They were gone for an hour, and when they returned, they found Amora in that condition. However, video footage showed Jessica and Blaine at a pawn shop at 9.05 a.m., where they pawned an impact tool and an electric chainsaw. After this, they shopped at a convenience store, where Jessica purchased a soda and a pack of cigarettes. Soon after the county deputies arrived, a Texas Ranger, Kenny Ray, arrived on the scene. When he first pulled up, Jessica and Blaine were embracing and looked like a grieving couple. The couple were read their Miranda rights and told that when the scene was cleared, they would be taken to the sheriff's office for additional questioning. After this, Ranger Ray had Blaine sit with him in his vehicle and the pair talked. Blaine denied any involvement with Amora's death and gave the ranger a list of people he thought could have done it, adding, Whoever did this should be hung. Blaine told the ranger the same story about him and Jessica leaving, then returning home to find Amora dead. However, his story changed slightly. He told the ranger that when they returned, Amora was not in her crib, but in a hole in the bathroom floor, caused by renovations he had been doing. 
Blaine said Amora had blood around her mouth, and it looked like she had been chewing on the insulation. In this version, Blaine said Amora was breathing, so they called 911. He then told the ranger they had called 911 before they found Amora, and when they found her, she was dead. Even though in the 911 call, he said he'd found his daughter and she was dead. It's worth noting that in the 911 call, the operator tries to help them do CPR, and Jessica hollers at Blaine to bring Amora to her. You can hear Jessica say, Blaine, get her, hurry. The 911 operator says, Are you there? Y'all stalling is not helping her at all. If he's not going to do it, you put the phone down and go get that baby and get her to the phone. Jessica also spoke with the ranger, who said she was at first crying and acting very distraught, but then her demeanor changed drastically, as she also tried to explain what had happened to the baby. After several false stories, Jessica finally told Ranger Ray he would not believe what she had to say, and that's when she launched into the possession story. She told the ranger that she knew about demon possession, but you can't really believe something for sure until you see it with your own eyes. She said she was possessed by the devil, who told her, I'm going to take Blaine's soul tonight. Jessica said she started freaking out, and she said the demon had gotten into Amora, so she started asking Blaine about having an exorcism. She said that she worried about money, so she wondered if they could get a priest to let them pay for an exorcism in installments. She told the ranger that Blaine said it was too late and that he was crying, claiming God said it was too late. She asked what he meant, and he said because if she doesn't go to heaven now, she'll live her life with Satan having her soul. Investigators initially focused on the master bedroom in the front of the mobile home as they found what appeared to be blood spatters in this area. According to investigators, this area was staged to appear to be the crime scene. Blaine's mother surely disputed this and said her grandson had sprayed fake blood in that room. Jessica and Blaine had met on MySpace in 2008. They dated for several months before Blaine agreed to accompany Jessica to the Longview High School prom. At the end of the night, Blaine had proposed to Jessica. His mother said it was a little too quick, but that Jessica seemed impressive and he was happy. The couple soon moved in together, living in an apartment in Longview. Things changed when Blaine's father passed away that September, and according to Jessica's mother, when Jessica turned 18 and received an insurance settlement from her father's passing in 2001. Heather, Jessica's mother, said Jessica stopped caring about her appearance and became withdrawn. After Jessica purchased a Ouija board, she claimed she and Blaine were speaking to their dead fathers through it. Jessica also began harassing Heather, accusing her mother of killing her father. Jessica's father, William, had completed suicide when he was 35, but Jessica became convinced her mother had shot him. In an email she sent to Heather, she told her mother she was going to go to Alabama to get the gun Heather had used to kill her father. Jessica also accused her mom of poisoning her, Amora, and Blaine. Jessica soon told Blaine the apartment was dark and haunted, so they moved in with Blaine's mother. Jessica became convinced that Blaine was possessed by an evil spirit based on his expressions, tone of voice, 
and something that wasn't what I knew Blaine to be. Blaine explained to her that since the demon came into him, he could talk to God, and his odd manners were because Jessica was lying to him. But during these demonic episodes, Blaine was no different to Amora and was wonderful with her. Alright guys, back again to talk about Funjet. Now, let's be honest, whether you're back in the office or still in your sweatpants working from home, that's still me. Life's day-to-day responsibilities lack the fun we all want and deserve. If you're looking for a sign to use some of that hard-earned PTO and have some much-needed fun, look no further. Funjet Vacations is a one-stop shop for all your vacation needs. And as experts in the industry, Funjet Vacations offers customers a fast, easy, and fun way to book their next vacation with exclusive package deals to all-inclusive resorts in Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. For a limited time, our listeners can use promo code FUNJET75 for $75 off your next Funjet vacation at Ryu Hotels and Resorts. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly resort or, like me, an adults-only getaway, there is a Ryu Hotel and Resort for you. To get started, just go to funjet.com or contact your travel advisor and you'll be out of the office in no time, maybe sipping Mai Tais on the beach, which is my dream. Offer is only valid at funjet.com when booked by October 15th for travel through December 2021. Restrictions apply. Now, if you're a true crime aficionado like I am, you wish that every crime could be prevented. Now, imagine if every crime could be halted before it happened. Okay, so you can't stop every criminal in their tracks. What if you could deter them? That's what Simply Safe's new wireless outdoor security camera does. It's wireless, so it can install anywhere, extending Simply Safe's perimeter of defense from your windows and doors to the far corners of your property. That's right, Simply Safe, the system that U.S. News and World Report names best home security system of 2021 just got even better, if that's even possible. I'm super happy with my wireless outdoor camera. It has an ultra-wide 140-degree field of view, so you can keep watch over your entire yard, and with three dogs and now a baby, it's really important to me. It has 1080p HD resolution with an 8x zoom. That means you can zoom in and clearly see things like faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. To learn more about the exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com/tcfc. Simply Safe is offering 20% off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com/tcfc. In a documentary by the famed filmmaker Werner Herzog, Blaine's cousin Tammy tells Werner that bad things can happen from playing with a Ouija board. She said that she had seen bad stuff and didn't play with a Ouija board anymore, but believed in demon possession. She discussed that the movie The Exorcist was bad and that the demon possession in the movie was real, not staged. She told Werner that there was no way anyone could spin their head around like that 
or bend their body in half without dying. In October 2008, Jessica, Amora, and Blaine traveled to Alabama, where Jessica had lived as a child. They visited the home of Lisa Taylor, who had known Jessica as a child, as her daughter was Jessica's best friend. Lisa said the trio only stayed for one night in October, and during that time, Jessica made strange accusations about Heather Carson. A month later, the three returned to Alabama and stayed for four days, saying they were going to move there. Lisa said there was a dramatic change in Jessica from the month before. She said that there was a weird, hollow, empty expression in Jessica's eyes, and that Blaine took care of Amora the entire time they stayed there. Lisa said Jessica ordered Blaine to do things, and Blaine would do it. She was worried about Jessica. Brian Perkins, Blaine's former boss, would testify that Blaine brought Jessica to work with him so he could keep an eye on her. Blaine told his boss that he just didn't think there was going to be much of a life for him and Jessica with the baby. Jessica claimed Blaine was jealous of her and began logging into her social media accounts and pretending he was her. By December 1st, 2008, Jessica said she had stopped questioning Blaine because he told her, God says there's things that you don't need to know right now. On this particular date, Blaine had woken Jessica and told her a demon had possessed Amora because she was walking and was too young to walk, even though she was a year old at this time. Blaine explained to Jessica that God had let this happen because he was tired of Jessica lying to Blaine. Blaine told Jessica that God was going to show him how to do an exorcism, and this would help Amora. Jessica wasn't sure what an exorcism was. Blaine took Amora into the back of the mobile home and began conducting the exorcism. Jessica could hear the demon crying out and heard some bangs. At one point, Blaine left the door open and Amora ran out. However, when Jessica saw her baby, she said she was not harmed at that point. Blaine told her that God had told him Amora had gotten a hammer and was hitting herself with it. At one point during the exorcism, they strapped Amora into her car seat and went to Walmart, apparently leaving the child at home. While they were gone, Blaine told Jessica that he was tempted to sell his soul to the devil so that Amora could be saved, but Jessica urged him not to be trapped by the devil that way. When they returned home from Walmart, Blaine took Amora into the back bedroom and wedged the door shut. Jessica admitted to hearing Amora screaming and also hearing blows falling on the child. She also saw a picture Blaine had taken of Amora, where one of Amora's eyes was deformed and warped down. Jessica continued to encourage Blaine to try to get the demon out of Amora. She went into the bedroom on different occasions, but Blaine told her the demon was hiding. However, there was blood spatter present on the door and door frame, enough of it that investigators believed Jessica had to have seen it. Jessica said she spoke to Amora several times, trying to calm her daughter down, and Amora would respond for a while before becoming mean. Jessica asked Blaine if that meant the demon was back, and he said, yeah, it's coming back, so she would leave. Jessica reminded Blaine that Amora was possessed by a demon, so he wouldn't feel bad for hurting her. During the final stretch of the exorcism, Jessica sat on the couch and watched television.
For these reasons, Blaine's defense attorneys tried to cast the full blame on Jessica. However, there was no evidence that Jessica actually participated in the exorcism, and Blaine's criminal background was brought into question. In March 2007, Blaine broke into a home and left obscene notes for a 13-year-old girl he had never met. He rifled through her underwear drawer and then left pornographic images from magazines with handwritten notes on each image, stating he would like to do each act with her. He was charged and convicted of a second-degree felony criminal solicitation of a child. The conditions of his arrest and conviction were that he could not be around non-biological children. He had to register as a sex offender with the county where he resided, and he had to serve 180 days in jail. He was authorized a work release, but after 48 days, he stopped going to the jail after work. If he hadn't stopped attending, he wouldn't have been out to exercise Amora. Blaine denied his involvement with the killing of Amora until he eventually confessed to Shirley Broyles, the nurse at the jail. He handed her a written note to speak to investigators and told her, I'm going to confess I did it, but Miss Shirley, the Blaine you know, did not do this. My dad told me to be a man, and I've been reading my Bible. Please, tell Jessica I love her. Just a few days after Blaine and Jessica were arrested, Blaine's sister Teresa visited Blaine in jail. While she was there, he told her he needed her to go to the trailer and get some evidence out from underneath it. Teresa told her aunt that night she needed to figure out a way to get to the trailer to retrieve something under it. The aunt contacted investigators, who immediately obtained an additional search warrant and found a pipe wrench in a clear plastic bag. Forensic analysts determined there were traces of astroglide on the wrench, in addition to other pieces of evidence that were retrieved from the site of the murder. A blood test was done on Blaine after his arrest, and he had methamphetamines in his system, 10 times the therapeutic dose. The landlady of his and Jessica's apartment found methamphetamines in a light bulb after the couple vacated the premises. During Blaine's trial, a friend of Jessica's testified that she was visiting Jessica a few months before Amora's murder. Jessica and Blaine were outside the trailer while Crystal, the friend, was inside with Amora. Blaine had a gun and was threatening to kill himself, and Jessica was trying to calm him down. Crystal heard a shot, and then Jessica came into the house crying and said he shot a hole in her floorboard. Blaine's defense attempted to present evidence that he was intellectually disabled and therefore exempt from execution. However, the jury did not agree. The experts on both sides agreed that Blaine's test scores failed to demonstrate sub-average intellectual functioning. Several tests were administered to Blaine, and he did well on some, but not on others. The defense expert even agreed that Blaine put forth less than adequate effort and was likely distracted. The state's expert said Blaine's reading comprehension was at the 8th grade level, although he had been withdrawn from school in the 4th grade and homeschooled for just a few months. He was taken out of school by his father after a corporal punishment incident by the principal. The state's expert said Blaine was able to hold a full-time mechanical job, such as working on vehicles. Blaine got his first job working in an automobile oil change place when he was just 15 and held that job for two years. 
His next job was at Big Five Tire and Auto, where he did diagnostic and mechanical work on cars and trucks. His boss was so impressed with his abilities, he encouraged him to work towards a promotion. He said Blaine was one of his best employees, although he had to fire him because Blaine eventually stopped showing up to work. A coworker testified that Blaine could do his job duties without any issues and could operate machinery and use tools. Blaine also kept the shop and tools clean without direction. Blaine's jury trial was moved from Russ County to Montgomery County due to a change of venue request. His defense attorneys were concerned that the pretrial publicity would prejudice potential jurors. A gag order had been issued the day after Blaine and Jessica's arrest, although this just hushed those in the legal system. Reporters were still able to speculate and interview family members. During Blaine's trial, Shirley Millam testified that she was concerned about Jessica's behavior in the weeks before Amora's death, but didn't say anything. The assistant prosecutor pointed out that Shirley didn't mention one word about these red flags in the grand jury testimony in the weeks after Amora's murder. District Attorney Michael Jimerson addressed the finger-pointing, stating, The trials consisted of Millam blaming Carson, while Carson blames Millam, and that is the nature of criminals. That is to say, they refuse to take responsibility for the horror of the selfish acts they inflict on others. Jessica announced she would invoke her Fifth Amendment rights if called to testify in Blaine's trial. On May 17, 2010, the jury found Blaine guilty of capital murder. Ten days later, he was sentenced to death by lethal execution. A few months after the trial, the trailer where Amora's death occurred caught fire. The manufactured home was vacant at the time, and the cause of the fire was not determined. In April 2011, the trial for Jessica Carson began. Over 1,000 Russ County residents were called in for jury duty. After a trial that lasted about a week, Jessica was found guilty of capital murder of her daughter, Amora Carson, and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Amora was born on November 12, 2007, to Jessica and Arlen Mutina. Arlen only saw Amora twice in her short life because he was serving in the military overseas. Amora was described as a beautiful little girl who was always happy and never cried. Arlen wrote in the following weeks after Amora's death. On December 22, 2008, I found that my daughter, Amora Bain Carson, was brutally slain at the hands of her mother, Jessica Bain Carson, and her fiancé, Blaine Millam. I never in the world would have imagined all of this. I know that Amora had no known illnesses, so it is my personal belief that this whole demonic possession is nothing more than an excuse made to escape the potential hazards they now both face. As a soldier, I have been in South Korea for the past year. I have only seen Amora twice in her life, and woe and behold, the third time will be burying my little girl soon. To my little angel, I will always be with you, and we will meet again in the next life. I will always love you, in this life and the next. Arlen's father, Richard Mutina, made a victim impact statement in court during Jessica's trial. Jesse, this has been one of the worst days of my life. 
I thought long on end what I was going to tell you. Heather has suffered. I've suffered, and Arlen has called me constantly. I want you to know, I don't hate you. I hate the acts y'all committed. It's affected the lives of not only me and my family, but many jury members. No matter how much punishment you receive, you will never suffer the way my granddaughter did. We did care, and I still care. Amora is in my home, in picture frames. That's all I have left of her, besides her daddy who served this country. You're getting off easy compared to what she got. Medical examiners said that this was one of the most shocking acts of abuse they had ever seen. Because of this, and to preserve some of the dignity of that 13-month-old who was viciously murdered, we have refrained from including the details of her wounds. It is our hope that if you have suspicions of child abuse and neglect happening, that you do the right thing and report it. In the U.S., you can call or text 1-800-4-A-CHILD. That's 1-800-422-4453. Professional crisis counselors are available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, in over 170 languages. All calls are confidential. The hotline offers crisis intervention information and referrals to thousands of emergency, social service, and support resources. In the UK, if you're worried that a child or young person is at risk or is being abused, contact the children's social care team at their local council. You'll be asked for your details, but you can choose not to share them. You can call 999 if the child is at immediate risk. If it's not an emergency, you can report the crime online or call 101. Calls to 999 or 101 are free. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod. But since I'm still locked out of that account and nobody from Instagram has helped me, be sure to follow me at Lainey Hobbs BO on Instagram to keep up with what's going on with the show and me in general. And of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John. Content editing by Brittany Martinez. Produced by the best in the business, you already know who it is. Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at WeTalkOfDreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.